So we are in the book of John. We're looking at the end of chapter 13, going into 14. We'll go through 14.9a, I'll call it. Part of verse 9 and 14. We're going to read a little in just a second here. And you'll notice there's some overlap with the message that Mark gave us a couple weeks ago. And that's fine. We're going to put a little bit different emphasis on it, but some of the same material, and that's okay. But let's go ahead and read John chapter 13, verse 30 through 14.9a. So, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he, Judas Iscariot, who was going to betray Jesus, went out immediately, and it was night. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. I'll just pause there. Now, that can kind of make your head spin a little bit. Who's, who's in who? Who's glorifying who? Uh, just an interesting kind of um, recap of our sermon series. We call this series the Hour of Glory because again and again, John refers to in the second half of the book of John, the final hour, the, the events, the day leading up to the cross as an hour of glory. But as he describes it, it's an hour of increasing darkness, right? Immediately, Judas went out to betray Jesus and it was dark. And immediately, the Son of Man will be glorified. This, this event that looks like shame and death and darkness on a cross is what John calls the revelation of God's incredible glory and manifestation. And so let's keep reading Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we just, uh, we ask for your spirit now to do the things that my words can't do. To speak 
through your word and to draw us to yourself to see what we don't always see in ourselves, the propensity to try to prove ourselves, to justify ourselves, to show that we have a place of honor before you. But Lord, you reveal to us again and again that it's only in denying ourselves, it's only in surrendering what we're trying so hard to justify that we truly find a place in you. And so Lord, today I just, I pray that the most important things would get through, that we would go to you, that we would lead others to you, that we would not be ashamed of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. It was kind of a difficult week with this passage because you probably noticed there's a lot of really famous quotable verses in there. If you've been in church for any great length of time, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to wind down the book of John by Easter, and so we're trying to parse out exactly what chapters and sections get which weeks, and, and you run across this, and there's, there's, you know, probably a good four or five good sermons in here. Uh, you, you, you could talk about the Trinity. You could talk about the, the first quote, the new commandment I give to you, love one another even as I have loved you, that you also should love one another. That's a, that's a common one. There's the one you hear at memorial services and funerals all the time, um, that um, <clears throat> in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. Uh, and then there's kind of the big one, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And this is probably the most radically exclusive claim that Jesus ever makes about himself. And if you believe him, if you take him at his word, if you believe that, you're putting yourself at odds with the mainline mantra, the dominant views of secular society and culture today. It's okay to believe in Jesus, they'll say, or I'm happy for you that you have your truth, but it's not okay for you to claim that Jesus is the only way. In other words, by and large, most people today, perhaps maybe even some of you in this room, would say it is not appropriate to make exclusive claims about absolute truth. It's fine to have your beliefs, but don't try to challenge anyone else's beliefs. Now, we've talked about this before, but it's worth saying again, there are a few problems with that idea. One to say that it's not okay to convince others to believe in your views about absolute truth, to say that is in itself a view about absolute truth that you are trying to convince other people to believe. In other words, it's not a neutral or tolerant position. You have an exclusive view about truth. And you're saying that your view is superior to mine and that I need to drop my view and accept yours instead. You're doing the exact same thing that you're asking others not to do. It's not a neutral position. It's just another view that no one else in any of those faith traditions will agree with. Now, everyone is proselytizing their own views about truth. Everyone is promoting their own beliefs. If you say you're allowed to believe in Jesus, but it's not okay to say he's the only way, you're also actually saying that it's not okay to believe in Jesus at all. If you think about who Jesus is and what his claims are about himself, we're not just talking about another prophet who points to the way, like a path. 
but rather, I am the way. Or not just another philosopher claiming to know the truth, but I am the truth. And not just another pathway to eternal life, but the giver and arbiter of life itself. He says, I am the life. I speak and the dead wake up. The ability to take life and give life is my prerogative under my authority and no one else. That's his claim. And if we believe that there is a historical event in which God himself manifested himself as one of us, as a human being, lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that we should have died, altered history, defeated death and decay and sin once and for all, ascended to a throne, is in now a position of authority in which he is gradually pushing back the darkness and will one day destroy evil and sin forever, and that all the sad things are coming untrue. If that's true, and you actually believe that, and you don't want to tell people about it, that's evil. Okay, that, that's like saying, I found the cure for cancer, and I'm not going to tell anyone about it. So to say you can believe that Jesus is the way, but you can't tell anyone about it, is to say you can't believe in Jesus because it totally negates everything about who he is. He offers life to everyone who believes in him, in his name. He says, I've got the control. I have the authority. I am the judge. And if you've got me, then I've got you. We said that a few weeks ago. If you've got me, I've got you. There's no path. It's all in him. And we can all say, well, there are plenty of people who are sincere about their beliefs. Who are, and so who are we to say that they're right or wrong? Now, I can respect anyone's sincerity in their beliefs. And I can even acknowledge that there's plenty of grains of truth in every other belief system that's out there. But ultimately, I don't get to say who's right and who's wrong He does, and he says it. He says, I am the one, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. But there's a problem. The problem is that whenever people start making absolute claims about truth, you find division, oppression, violence, How can you hold on to exclusive beliefs about truth and not feel that other people are inferior? How can you be a Christian who believes Jesus is the only way and not become a total jerk? Notice in the exact same passage, how are Jesus' disciples to be known in the world? Are they known for their exclusive truth claims? Not dominantly. They're to be known for radical love. This is how you're to be known as my disciples, that you love one another as I have loved you. Foot washing love. Laying down your own dignity for another love. Giving your own life for another kind of love. Radical love. This is how Christians are to be known in the world. That you love one another. A disciple who believes exclusively that Jesus is the only way is to be marked by a totally selfless love. How does that work? How does one believe that Jesus is the only way and not become someone with a superiority complex? And by the way, there are plenty of Christians who do take 
a certain amount of pride in their beliefs and therefore regard everyone else as inferior and they are jerks. I've been there. I've been that jerk. What makes a difference? The difference is a matter of motivation. What are we actually seeing? What is our driving force? What are we trying to defend? What are we holding on to? Anytime we start talking about personal beliefs about truth, we start to get uncomfortable because inevitably, anytime you start talking about what is absolutely true, you're talking about how a person gains a sense of place. Okay, where they fit in the world, how they get a sense of self. What is your grounding story? How do you get a sense that you're somebody, that you belong? Who or what is your circle that gives you a sense of safety or protection or provision and a name? And inevitably, everyone is trying to justify themselves. Everyone is trying to prove that they have a right to have that place. Whether through ministry involvement, education, career accomplishments, relationships, your peer groups in school, who are the popular kids, who are not the popular kids, what's the pecking order here? How do you justify yourself and your claim to have a place? In this passage, God, through Jesus, is offering us the ultimate place of honor. But in order to receive it, we have to first forsake any right or claim that we believe we have to it. The passage begins with little children, or children, dear children. I'm with you a little while longer, you'll see me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Why does he call them little children here? It's kind of a term of endearment. I read or heard uh, someone say, but it's kind of like if you were in Scotland and a teacher was saying, lads, you know, uh, laddies or something like that. It's a term of endearment and closeness. But what's unique about it here is that this is the first time in the whole gospel of John that Jesus refers to them using this word. Why? What's, what's different? Well, in the previous passage, we read that as soon as Judas received that morsel of bread, Satan entered into him. And he went out immediately to do what he had contrived to do, to betray Jesus. So you have someone who is a seed of the serpent, listening to his father, the devil. And John chapter 1, verse 12 says, Yet to all who did receive him, Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children, children of God. So now he's saying little children. Because the one who is not his child has left. And now he begins to talk about a place that they are in, a family, children. Now a little side note here. This Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. It's the first uh, beginning of the season of Lent. We don't officially celebrate Lent necessarily as a church here, but we love to encourage people to because it's a season of looking forward to the resurrection and experiencing it in a way that makes it a lot more real by going through a time of denying yourself certain things. There's different ways that people do this. Some of them will give up coffee. Some of them Facebook. So, you know, I don't, I don't know. But there's some devotional uh, guides that Nancy printed out. They're from the Village Church in Texas, I believe, and how they go through it. But uh, those are for you if you want to take one. They're out in the, 
the counter out there. But it's fitting that this passage begins with a little while longer and, I, and you're not going to have me anymore for a while. And if you can imagine, it's easy for us who know the end of the story, but if you can imagine what that would feel like, we're going into this hour of darkness, increasing darkness, experiencing what it is going to be to be without Jesus, to be in the wilderness, to be in the darkness. And I think sometimes we have to relate to that a little bit. We have to feel the profoundness of that in some way. And that's what Lent is is all about, uh, leading up to resurrection, bursting into new life. So... That's there for you. He says, a new commandment I give to you. I'm leaving you with this. As I've loved you, so you should love one another. How does he love them? In the previous chapter, three weeks ago, what we covered, he lays aside his outer garment and washes his disciples' feet. Now, what's that? It represents his place. Okay, it represents his identity. And it just had gotten through saying, Jesus, knowing that all things were given to him under his authority from the Father. So what is that? Jesus is a a new Adam, a true Adam, a true human being who's in the position that we were all meant to be in. That's where that was our house. That was the Father's house, his creation. We are like the firstborn children in the household who have an entitlement to everything, the name, the possessions, the protection, the authority that the Father gives to the firstborn son. That was us. But we lost that in the fall. And part of the curse was from dust you came and to dust you will return. And and part of Jesus's place, his identity, is knowing that from God he came and to God he would return. In other words, he's free from the curse. He's free from the dust of the earth. And being free from the dust of the earth, he lays aside his place, his outer garment. It puts on the garment of a servant, the identity of a servant, and rubs the dust that it's on his disciples' feet onto himself, onto his garment, washing their feet, taking their dirt on himself, taking our dirt on himself on the cross. How does he love his disciples? He takes their dirt on himself. He lays aside his right and his claim to a place. That's how he loves him. He says, as I've loved you, now you love one another. This is how the world will know that you're my disciples, that you surrender your name and your claim to a place and love one another. Lay it down. In the context of this supper, everyone was vying for a place. In Luke's account, there's an argument that breaks out among them as to which is to be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. Who's going to sit at his right hand and his left hand, the place of honor in the kingdom, and even at this table? And as Mark painted a picture of it uh, two weeks ago as he was preaching, the picture kind of came into mind for me, and it started to make more and more sense. They'd had this argument, and Jesus had said, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. John, who's writing this gospel, was the youngest, so they plopped him next to Jesus in the place of honor. They're listening to him. They don't really get it, but they're listening to him. And the other place of honor, the other side of Jesus, Jesus was Judas. So they put the youngest, and then Jesus also invites the betrayer to take the seat of honor 
and one last ditch extension of friendship. And that's what he does. But then you have Peter. You've got Peter off in the peripheral somewhere going, but I, (laughs) Jesus, you're going to wash my feet? Never. I'll lay down my life for you. And and man, if you just read Peter, you got to feel kind of sorry for him because he's always trying to prove himself. He's always trying to get himself into that place, that place of honor, right? A sense of self, that grounding thing that makes him feel like he matters. So for instance, you have Matthew 16, Jesus is explaining that he must suffer and be killed at the hands of the rulers and the chief priests and on the third day rise. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to him and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Or as we read during communion, Mark 14, 29, Peter declared, even if I fall away, if everyone, or no, if everyone else falls away, if, if everyone else falls away, I will not fall away, right? He's trying to prove himself. The soldiers come to arrest Jesus. Who pulls out the sword but Peter? You know, he lops off the soldier's ear and Jesus is like, no, 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 stop. You don't get it. He's kind of like a teacher's pet, right? Were you a teacher's pet? Did you know a teacher's pet? It's that kid who always sat in the front of the class, always raised their hands, always tried to impress the teacher, did the right thing, and, 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 but no one else really liked them very much because they're just, you know, they're just kind of out there trying to be a goody-goody, getting the good graces of the teacher. He's trying so hard to prove himself, but he doesn't understand that in Jesus' kingdom, whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And you see a parallel. Actually, chapter 13 and chapter 14 run parallel to each other in their dialogue with Peter. Jesus laid aside his outer garment and began to wash his disciples' feet. Peter says, do you wash my feet? Jesus responds, you don't understand now, but you will. Chapter 14 in the same way, Jesus says, as you saw me do that, love, one, love you, love one another. Peter says, hold on a second, where are you going? Jesus says, you can't follow me now, but you will. Right, same kind of words, same kind of answer. Chapter 13, he says, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. You have no inheritance with me, this thing that I laid aside. And in chapter 14, he says, Why can't I follow you? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus says, really? No, you're actually going to deny me. And to paraphrase, if I don't leave you, you'll have no place with me. You'll have no share with me. You'll have no place with me. And I think the way John has structured it, the way he placed the denial of Peter there, is to illustrate that only by going through that, only by going through the shame of denying Jesus, could he ever really have a place with Jesus. Only through failure can he be promoted. But Jesus is patient and he's reassuring. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Don't let your hearts be troubled by my absence. This is a word that we need today. Because sometimes 
we forget. It's easy to think that God is not there with us. It often looks like we've been left in the darkness. There are times when he seems absent. And if you notice, Jesus is comforting his disciples at a time when, if anything, they should be comforting him. And he's there, and he's our comforter, even when he seems absent. And he says, there's plenty of room in my father's house for you. My father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go there to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, this is a really common verse to read at memorials, memorials and funerals. It's, there's a lot of songs written about this in mansions of glory and endless delight. I'll ever adore thee in heaven so bright. The old English renders it mansions. In my father's, you know, uh, my father's house, there are many mansions or something like that. I want to just say right now, there is no way that mansions is ever a good translation of this Greek word. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. Um, not a chance. And the tricky thing about it is that what he really has in mind here is a place of belonging in a, in a father's household, which meant so much more in a patriarchal cultural system than it does to us today. The emphasis isn't so much on by and by in the sky when you die, you'll get this great reward. Now that's true, but the danger of jumping to that is that you're going to miss out on what he's actually saying. Because thus begins a whole four chapters where again and again and again we're going to say, as you abide in me, I abide in you. The word dwelling place is just the noun form for dwell or remain or abide. So it's the same word when Jesus says in chapter 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches, remain in me and I in you. If you do, whoever does not remain in me will be cut off and that branch, those branches will be burned up and so on. And so there's, there's this connection. In fact, down in verse 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our dwelling place with him. So the problem, if it's just like a thereafter promise for when we die, we are gonna forget that what he's promising is not just for then, it's for now. It's for today. God wants to make his dwelling place with you right now, in you, today. And the idea that we think of it as a mansion with a big flat screen TV and a fountain out in front is such a Western consumer-driven culture's imposition on Scripture. Because what he's actually saying we get is so much bigger than that. It's what Jesus laid aside it's having dominion over all things, having a place in the household of the Father. I'll read a quote from Sandra Richter, who wrote a book called The Epic of Eden. And she writes this, in Israel's particular tribal system, an individual would identify their place within society through the lens of their patriarch's household first, then their clan or lineage, then their tribe, and finally the nation. So concentric circles, starting with the patriarch, the man of the house, the father or the oldest son. And that person 
was the guarantor of your safety, of your provision, your ability to eat, your protection. They would enact and exert justice, enforce the law. Uh, This is where you're connected to. If you do not have a father's house, in Hebrew it's called a bet ab, if you do not have a father's house, you're in outer darkness. And usually it was the orphans and the widows. So God has all kinds of laws in place to make sure that the orphans and the widows are taken care of. And there's all these really funky Old Testament laws that don't make any sense to us because we don't live in that kind of a system. Like if a husband dies, his brother is to marry his wife. And everyone goes, well, what if she doesn't want to marry him? That seems kind of, you know, not like a good thing. But in this culture, it was because if he didn't, then she's left without protection, without uh, an inheritance, without a name. She's homeless, basically. She has nothing. She has nothing uh, to ascribe to herself. And so the, the other man takes her in as a mode of, of bringing her into a father's household. This is what the book of Ruth is all about. The whole book of Ruth is about a father's household. Boaz, who takes Ruth under his covering and she basically asks him to marry her so that she would have a name, so that she would have a house. And he redeems her. Uh, That's what redemption is all about. And so I could go on and on and on, but there's a marriage analogy here. There's an adoption analogy here where the, the emphasis is that Jesus is saying, if I go away right now, I'm gonna make a way for you to have a place in the father's household. To have all rights to everything that the father owns as the bride of the firstborn son. To have total security. To have a true identity. To have full unconditional acceptance. To have protection. To have an inheritance of all things. To have the Father himself. I'm going to open a doorway. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that except through me is Jesus going away to make a way to open the door for all who would believe in him to have a share in the Father's household. And that's what it's all about. When will we be in that dwelling place with him? He says later, the spirit of truth will dwell or abide, lives with you and will be in you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will also live. In that day, you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. Sandra uh, Sandra Richter says, but what Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us is so far superior to the objectives of a consumer culture, mansions, that it takes my breath away. Our ultimate destination is the newly adopted children of the Father, is the family compound. John 12, 46 says, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay or dwell or remain in darkness. The bride has a place and is not left in outer darkness. This is the ultimate security, provision, protection, and love. Now, we don't relate to that very well because we don't live in a patriarchal society. We live in a different culture where instead of the goal being to find a father's house 
to identify yourself with and come underneath the covering of, we all make a name for ourselves. We leave our father and mother and we go out and we make a, our name, we make a career, we, we make it in the world and we build our own families and our own households and that's how we find a place. And so we don't really relate to this, but how do we find that place? What do we do? What, it might not be marrying a prominent position, you know, a person of prominent position in a father's household, but how do we find our place? Is it through body image? If I eat the right things, go on the right diet, look a certain way, then I'll belong. Is it through career? If I work my way up in a job, people will respect me and I'll have a place. You know, I'll make enough money, I'll have a household, I'll have a place. Education. In my, my own personal story, I realized as I was mulling over this week that I realized that my entire college career was built around nothing more than proving that I had a right to a place. Uh, because, now, Why? Because starting in like 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, you start hearing, hey, if you don't keep your grades up, you're not going to get into a good college. If you don't have better grades, you won't get a scholarship. You know, your, your cousin got a scholarship. <laughs> and I heard this a lot. I heard this from my guidance counselor, from my parents. Now, they have all good intentions, and they're right. But my goal then was I'm going to prove myself. I'm going to go to college. And I'm going to make it. I'm going to graduate. I had no idea what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. What in the world is college for? I picked a major. Music, because I like music. Right now I can think of probably five things I should have chosen instead. <laughs> that would have been way more applicable. But it wasn't about any of that. It was about proving that I was going to get through. I was going to go to college. I was going to make my mama happy. She's right here in this room. She, you know. Those guidance counselors' voices in my head. College, college, college. That's all that mattered. That was a good experience. God used it. Got a minor in worship theology. And it, you know, has definitely come into play. Uh, but something didn't click right. The whole motivation behind the whole thing was to prove that I had a place. Because if, if you didn't go to college, then you weren't enough. You, you couldn't make it. You, you wouldn't have a place. And that's not true. So if you didn't go to college, just want you to know I don't think lowly of you here. How do we get a place? You have to give up. You might say it like this. The only way to have a place in the Father's house is to follow in Jesus' example and lay aside your outer garment. His kingdom isn't marked by those who are qualified, but by those who lay down their qualifications and love one another. Or to put it in another sense, the only way to get promoted into the Father's household is through failure. Have you ever wondered how it was that Peter, the strongest, the most outspoken, vocal supporter of Jesus, could so easily deny Jesus? It's easy to say, I wouldn't do that. Why did he do it? Was he simply weak? Well, yeah, that's part of it. And we should all be willing to acknowledge our own weakness, but there's more still. 
You know, as I read it, I read Peter standing up. I'll never deny you. I'll never betray you. Lord, you'll never get taken away and executed. I'll make sure of it. I'm your guy. What's he doing, though? You see, the very thing that leads him to say, I will never deny you, Jesus, is the very underlying thing that causes him to deny Jesus. What do I mean by that? For Peter, Peter's main thing is justifying himself. Proving himself to the other disciples, proving himself to Jesus that he belongs in that place of honor at the table. That's what it's about for Peter. It's about his name. It's about proving that he deserves a place. I'll never deny you, Jesus. I should be in that place. I'll show you that I can be in that place. I'll show you, I'll prove myself to you. But it's not about Jesus for Peter. It's about his own place. Because when it's about your own place and your own name and all you can do is justify yourself, then when one lady comes along as things are in turmoil and the trial is beginning to take place and she says, I saw you, you were with his disciples, you're one of them, then the most natural thing in the world for Jesus' biggest supporter is to do the same thing he's always been doing, try to preserve his name, try to preserve his place. I tell you, I don't know the man. If you're all about making sure everyone knows how much you know about God, making sure that people think highly of you, that you're a good Christian, that you deserve a place in a church, if you're in denial about your sin, unwilling to come to grips with truth, then when confronted, the thing that matters most to you is going to manifest itself. And you'll begin to deceive and to lie and to deny Jesus. Because for Peter, the most important thing was his own name, was his own place. John 21, we see the reversal of all of this, and we went to it a couple weeks ago. I'm going to read the part that I didn't read three weeks ago. This is where uh, after the resurrection, they're in a boat fishing, and Jesus calls to them from the shore, and he says, throw your net over here. They haul in a huge load of fish. John says, it's the Lord, and Peter leaps off the side of the boat and swims to Jesus. Now, I wonder what he's thinking. He knows the truth. Is he going to reject me? Is he going to scorn me? Is he going to discipline me? Peter, you failed. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. 
Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the type of death in which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. And history tells a story that Peter later in life was crucified And that when he was crucified, he said, crucify me upside down because I'm unworthy to be executed in the same glorious manner as my Lord. What's going on in this passage? Three times he asked, do you love me? In correlation with the three times Peter denied him. Jesus is acknowledging, yes, Peter, you failed me. Peter, you failed me, but what does Peter do? He doesn't say, Jesus, you know, if you would have been there. Or Jesus, you know, all I was trying to do. Or Jesus, I was just making it up. I didn't actually think that, you know. Um, He doesn't make any excuses for himself. He has nothing he can say. He says, you know all things. But I still love you. Yes, I failed you. And Jesus says, okay, Now you're in charge. Now you can lead. The word feed for feed my lambs is the same word that means shepherd or pastor. Now you're promoted, Peter. Now you get it. Because you failed, you can be promoted. You had to fall first. You know, as we sit here today and we ponder this message, do you have a place? First of all, do you know that Jesus has gone to make a place for you in the Father's household and that there is plenty of room in his household for you? Do you know that? Do you know that you don't have to prove yourself? that you don't have to strive, that you don't have to live up to anyone's expectations to have a place in the Father's household. And in fact, it's only when realizing that we don't that we actually get it. How do you know if you have a place in the Father's house? Do you know because you have all the right beliefs? Because you believe Jesus is the only way and you go telling everyone that he's the only way or... Or do you know because of your love, your love for one another, that you're okay having nothing to prove, laying aside your outer garment, your claim to a place, and willing to get involved in other people's dirt to love them? If we were all to suddenly find out that the big one hits and uh, we didn't make it through tomorrow. Do you know you have a place? Do you know where your place would be? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He holds the keys. And if you believe in him, if you come to him, then he will welcome you. I want to close by reading a sonnet. The author was unknown. It was in a commentary that uh, D.A. Carson wrote. 
I am the way to God. I did not come to light a path to blaze a trail that you may simply follow in my tracks, pursue. My shadow like a prize that's cheaply won. My life reveals the life of God, the sum of all he is and does. So how can you, the sons of night, look on me and construe my way as just the road for you to run? My path takes in Gethsemane, the cross, and stark rejection draped in agony. My way to God embraces utmost loss. Your way to God is not my way, but me. Each other path is dismal swamp or fraud. I stand alone. I am the way to God. I am the truth of God. I do not claim I merely speak the truth as though I were a prophet, but no more. A channel stirred by spirit, power, or merely human frame. Nor do I say that when I take his name upon my lips, my teaching cannot err, though that is true. A mere interpreter I'm not, some prophet voice of special fame. In timeless reaches of eternity, the triune God decided that the word, the self-expression of the deity, would put on flesh and blood and thus be heard. The claim to speak the truth, good men applaud. I claim much more. I am the truth of God. I am the resurrection life It's not as though I merely bear life-giving drink. A magic elixir, which men might think, is cheap because though lavish, it's not bought. The price of life was fully paid. I fought with death and black despair, for I'm the drink of life. The resurrection is the link between my death and endless life long sought. I am the firstborn from the dead, and by my triumph I deal death to lusts and hates. My life I now extend to men and ply them with the draft that ever satiates. Religion's page with empty boasts is rife, but I'm the resurrection and the life. Let's pray. Father, we want to take a step to you today. We want to believe you are who you say you are. If nothing else, Lord, then today we throw ourselves off the boat like Peter and we run to you. We we say, God, thank you for your gift. Thank you for your welcome. Thank you that you didn't hold your status or your position over us. Today, Lord, we surrender. We surrender our self-justification. We surrender the arguments. We surrender the need to prove ourselves, the need for more relational equity, career advancement, for more educational accolades, the approval of our peers to have a place. Because now that we have a place in you, we have nothing to prove and we can be truly honest and we can run to you like Peter, without any excuses, knowing that in our shame we deserve to have the door close in our face, but you welcomed us anyway. So Lord, today we run to you. And Lord, for those who have you, I pray that we would 
love others into your kingdom as well. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. I wanna close with one parting thought before we sing our last song. I heard a, a talk by Francis Chan who was a mega church pastor that started in a house with a few people and grew to thousands of people, over five, 6,000 people. And he said, we got to a point where I realized that the amount of money and investment we were pouring into the ability for people to come to a meeting was not yielding a significant return. Every year, five or 6,000 people were yielding maybe 100 newcomers or new converts. But if Jesus is who he says he is, then nothing matters more than telling people that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through him. Nothing is more important than loving people into Jesus and telling them about his love. And God forbid that this would ever be a church that inadvertently and inefficiently invests in a meeting that yields no return. So let the Spirit multiply through you and tell others about Jesus because there's no other way to the Father. So let that be your challenge. We're here for you today if you need prayer. Let's stand and sing.